You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. We've spent the summer going through the topic of what is the church. And hopefully, I hope that we're all on the same page now that the church is not a place, but the church is a people. It's a gathering of people. Every Sunday, the church gathers together to worship the Lord, to encourage, to be encouraged by the preaching of the word, and then to scatter to the rest of the world. But we don't stop being the church when we leave, do we? We scatter with the light of the world residing within us. And we are Christ's representatives as we go. We are the church. Last week, I covered what love is. Really for two reasons. First, because I knew that we were um, going to come into what church conflict is. We're going to spend the next two weeks covering conflict within the church. And if we didn't have a solid definition of what binds the church together, how would we approach what moves the church apart. We needed to have the glue as we dealt with the conflict. Second, and more importantly, is that love is foundational to being a Christian. Being a Christian that does not love is like being a fish that does not swim. It's like being a musician that does not play music. It's like being a Browns fan with a winning record. Things just don't fit. It's the opposite of what it's designed to be. So much so that if we have not love, the Bible says you have not Christ. First John three fourteen. So with that in mind, let's review what love is. We defined love four ways last week, and they build on each other. The first is love is a commitment. Love is a commitment, right? God said, as he met with his people in the wilderness after Sinai, I will be their God and they will be my people. And he makes a covenant, a commitment to them over and over again in the Old Testament. Second, love is not just to be committed to, it's to be with. You don't get married and then move into different homes, separate all the things in your life and go on separate vacations. You're committed to be with Someone love goes a step further. It is also to be for someone. Love is a position of advocacy. This will be so important as we deal with conflict because much conflict exists when one party is no longer for another, or at least it seems like one party isn't for another. Love, lastly, and most importantly, is directional. We talked about love being an untuness. I have directed my life to be committed with and for another person. So now we're going to look at conflict, specifically through the lens of James 4. It's one of the most practical books in the Bible. I'm indebted to Paul Tripp for his work in this area. His books on suffering, leadership, conflict, and relationships have been paramount in my life. 
his book entitled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. I've probably read six times in the last five years. I highly recommend that book to anybody. His chapter on obstacles is instrumental to this sermon alone. So let's dive into James 4. We're going to look at 1 through, t- 1 through 10. And then let's pray. And then let's get into the wrestling ring of conflict. We will read the whole thing this week, even though we're only going to cover the first half. Stand with me for the reading of God, God's word, James 4. <clears throat> what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Bow your heads with me. Father God, as we deal with this difficult concept, as we enter really into conflict, Lord, we ask for humility. We ask for your favor. And we ask that you would change our our hearts in the way that we engage with the enemy, or at least who we think is the enemy, even though you call us to treat the enemy much different. Amen. You may be seated. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. If you put two toddlers in the same room, they will smile at each other. But if you only put one train to play with, One of the children will be going choo-choo, and the other one will be going boo-boo. And the hardest part of conflict is that the, the, the more you are around someone, the closer you are to someone, the more likely the conflict will actually arise, and the harder it will be to handle. Let me give you an example of one common conflict. Like most couples, there is a difference between Corey and I when it comes to our spending habits. Corey is security-driven, so she likes to know that there will be money at the end of our month and not month at the end of our money. So she's a saver. Your pastor is pleasure-driven. I like cool stuff. 
I like things I get to enjoy. Well, you can imagine how this sometimes creates conflict. So there have been many, especially early anniversaries, when we spent very little money on our meal. We would go to Chili's, we would split an appetizer and a meal and call it an anniversary. And as you can imagine, something like this was going on in my brain. Honey, notice how that honey ain't sweet anymore, it's a little bit bitter. Honey, wouldn't it be nice to have our own meals for our anniversary? And I'm sure her response, knowing my wife, would go something like this. Honey, wouldn't you like to fill up the gas tank on the way to work on Monday? And that could have been very much the case, especially early on in our marriage. We were po, right? Not poor. We couldn't afford the O and the R. We were po. But on our anniversary, I wanted steak. And I didn't want to share it. And I didn't get the steak. Why? Because I love my wife. And I didn't want to bike to work on Monday. She had a really good point. But I want you to notice a couple things within that conflict. I was committed to a meal with my wife for our anniversary. Notice those love languages. I was committed to a meal with my wife for our anniversary. And the conflict started to happen when in my heart I was committed to a steak with a knife for my anniversary. Notice the difference. It's subtle. And while this could be considered a silly story, this happens every day in homes all over the world. My guess is that in the last week, you have engaged in more conflict than you wanted to. Whether it was with your child on how he or she would spend their time, whether it was with a coworker and their commitment to a job or a project, Maybe it was with a family member on how or how not they were going to get the vaccine. Whether it was the car behind you trying to pass you on these back roads, even though you're already going 65 and there's a buggy coming the other direction. Conflict exists. Conflict is inevitable. The question becomes, how do we deal with it as Christians, especially when conflict comes to church? First, remember, conflict is inevitable. Second, what I want you to realize is this. You need to understand that conflict is for our good. You need to understand that conflict is for our good. I know some of you are thinking, Pastor AJ, that is the most foolish thing I have ever heard in my life. I want you to think about it. If the goal of the Christian life is to fall more and more in love with God and be more and more like him, what type of people did Jesus love? Did he love a type of person that was committed to him? Did he love the type of person that wanted to be with him? Did he love the type of person that was for him? No, he loved sinners. He loved people who put idols before him every single day. He loved, as the Bible put it, an adulterous generation. 
that constantly put their love of other things before him. The reason a sovereign God allows conflict to happen is that so you can learn how to do the same thing. What's the same thing? To love when it's hard. To love when it's hard. That's why Jesus says that you have to love your enemies. And he did it without stuttering. It's so hard. And the conflict that exists, the enmity that exists between people that loathe each other, that exists for you to lean into the Spirit of God that dwells within you and empowers you to love the same way He loves. The conflict, believe it or not, is for your good, it's for your righteousness. I've had people in my past that I have loathed. And if you're a Christian, it just doesn't happen overnight. Please know that, right? Okay, now I'm in Christ, now I get to love my enemies, it's real easy, right? No, it is something that you might have to pray for daily. When that person comes to mind, you're going to have to go, Okay, Lord, help me love that person. Lord, I pray a blessing for this person. I pray that they would know you. I pray that they would love you well. And as you're saying those words, your heart might be saying at the same time, I hope they die. Because it doesn't just happen overnight. We lean into the Spirit. And whether it takes weeks or months or years, we learn to love people that are so hard to love that they might be considered unlovable. It's hard. So knowing these two things, knowing that conflict is inevitable and conflict is for your good, Let's examine what the scripture says. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. Question 1. Why do we fight with one another? Why don't you think about this? Our typical response to conflict, if you're human, is to point your finger elsewhere. Right? Ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve committed the first sin, this has been the case. Recall Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have sinned against a holy God. God comes looking for them. They have hidden themselves from God. They've covered their shame. And when God asks Adam, what have you done? Adam's response is, the woman you gave me. In one phrase, he has not taken any personal responsibility, but he has blamed the wife and he's blamed God. And we do this all the time when we enter into conflict. But the Bible is clear where Adam tries to change the subject. The reason we fight is because there is something wrong going on inside of us. There's something wrong. The word desire used in James 4.2 is better translated as selfish desire. 
All desires are not wrong, but selfish desires are wrong, right? To go back to my anniversary, I wanted steak. I knew it would not only cost me, but it would cost my family. But I wanted steak. It was my desire. However, if we had the same anniversary today, and Corey said, no, you can't have steak. I'm too worried about our finances. Y'all, we have moved, we have purchased the O and the R, and we've actually upgraded to some sense of financial security over the course of 10 years. She would be in sin because her fear would have driven her. She hasn't done that. She's let me get the stake, by the way, so you know that conflict does not exist. But when our love suddenly comes pointed back at us, that's when conflict occurs. You see, we, we tend to produce conflict in life. I'm gonna, I've listed six ways in your bulletin that your heart creates selfish desires. I put them up on the screen too. Comfort, pleasure, recognition, power, control, acceptance. These are the six ways hearts tend to reach and what drives conflict. Now notice that These things are not bad desires. We talked about that all through the book of Ecclesiastes. But they become sinful when they become selfish desires. When our love is pointed back at us and not unto another. And we are prone to desire something selfishly when we fear losing one of these six things. Let's go through them real quick. Comfort. I want must have and deserve comfort and you'd better not get in the way of me getting it i fear hard work pleasure i want must have and deserve pleasure and you'd better give it to me i fear pain recognition i want must have and deserve recognition or i will be devastated i fear being overlooked power i want must have and deserve power and you'd better do what i say I fear being told what to do. Control. I want, must have, and deserve control. And you will feel the brunt of my disappointment if you mess up my tidy little universe. I fear unpredictability. Acceptance. I want, must have, and deserve acceptance. And you are responsible to give it for to me. I fear rejection. On your sheet, I want you to look at those six things. I've listed them. I want you to circle the one that you most identify with. Maybe you're like me. Maybe there's two things. Maybe six things. (laughs) Take a moment. Look at that sheet. What is one of the ones you most identify with? If you're bold enough, maybe ask your family or friends at lunchtime which ones they think you are. Might be a good tell. Now let's take some real world, world examples. Real world examples. If your coworker got the promotion and the salary increase, even though they have done nothing more than you to grant that increase, would you feel conflicted that they now had more power over you? Why? Why can't you feel happy for them? Or can you not trust them for some reason? If your teammate scored the winning touchdown and everyone's lifting him up after the game, raising him up in the air, or maybe the winning run, it's that 
ball at home plate. I don't know if any of you saw the Field of Dreams thing on Thursday night. It was awesome. The walk-off. And they're getting all the praise for that last run, that last touchdown. But you scored the first three? Does your recognition bubble, has it been popped? Or when someone seeks you harm, do you long for justice, a good thing? Or do you long for revenge to get even, to settle the score? You want power and control back. I feel you. There have been days where I have wanted to get revenge so bad that I was willing to put the con in conflict. Because my heart sought what is not mine. Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved. Notice how he opens with that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. You see, it all circles back to the glory of God not being central in our hearts. It all comes back to not having a love for our neighbor, especially one who we have enmity with. And it can so quickly be replaced with self-glory and self-love. Let's look at question two. What has become more important to me than my relationship with God? James asks this question within the text because he wants us to see how serious it is to make our comfort, to make our pleasure, to make our acceptance, to make our control, to make our uh, recognition a selfish desire. If you do not understand this, you will fail to handle conflict in a redemptive way. What has become more important to me than my relationship with God? Notice what he says, James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship within the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's bold language. Paul Tripp says this about James 4.4. When we make something other than God first in our lives, we have become too friendly with the world and committed spiritual adultery. When we make something other than God first in our lives, we have become too friendly with the world and have committed spiritual adultery. This is no small matter. How do you respond to conflict? Which of those six categories would you fall into? And how does it become a God to you? Let's walk through some examples. If you're a comfort acceptance person, right? Conflict might happen. And for the sake of removing conflict, you stay silent. It's okay. It's not a big deal. I just want everyone to get along. You see friends yell at each other and you're like pulling out candy out of your pocket. Okay, here's a a ring pop. You can be happy. Be happy. Shut your mouth. No more yelling. And sometimes it's good to bury the hatchet and not make it a big deal. Other times you enable sin. Because when someone sins against you, instead of calling it sin and making them feel uncomfortable, you see comfort and say to them, it's okay for you to sin like that against me. Not realizing that they're not just sinning against you. They're sinning against God. Psalm 51.4. And he is not okay with sin. 
We talked about it last week. Some of the most loving things we can do is to call out a brother or sister when they're sinning. Now, it's got to be done with grace. Colossians 3, Proverbs 15, Matthew 18, Matthew 5. It's got to be done with grace. But one of the most gracious things you can do is call out someone in their sin. You have put your own comfort ahead of God's glory when we do not. If you're a pleasure person, you like to engage in things that make you happy. I like good food. I like good music. I like fun vacations. I like reading a good book or a good movie. And I, most importantly, like my introvert time so I can recharge. And when you take away those pleasures from me, well, they can quickly become a God for me. I can promise you that. Something to strive after and look forward to and sacrifice for. I love good things, right? And the opposite, when the opposite happens, when I feel pain... I am prone to engage in conflict, and I can promise you it is on in unhealthy ways. I so desire to remove it. If you're a recognition person, I think of the story of the mother of James and John. You might have heard this before. Uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, go up to Jesus. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in the kingdom. That's bold, right? That is bold of a mother to come to the king of the universe and say, See these two sons of mine? I'd like them in positions of power. But she desires recognition. Maybe not for her, maybe, but for her sons. Recognition was important to her. That was her motivation, not the kingdom of God in that moment. I also thought of King Saul, right? David gets all the recognition. He takes David on as a commander. And what do the people sing in the streets? The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul liked that part of the song. And then he hated the next part. David has struck down his ten thousands. And then he tried to kill David. Luckily, he's an awful spear thrower. He didn't have a good men's ministry for throwing axes or anything like that out here. And if you're a person who wants power or control, if that's your idol, this is one of mine too. We have to surrender to God every day. Every day. We have to pray, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And if you're a power and control person, these are typically the most easy to diagnose because... We fight fire with fire. We fight fire with fire. And I'm convinced these are the people that Jesus was speaking to when he said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are to be called sons of God. Think about this. Being a peacemaker assumes conflict. If there's already a peace, You're not a peacemaker. You're a peace participant. But being a peacemaker assumes conflict. It sees sin and conflict for what it is and steps in, in love, to deal with it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Peacemakers look for ways to glorify God and love their neighbor. And if you're like me, I'm prone to neglect God and satisfy whatever my neighbor wants. And then I'll call it love. Because there's peace, right? Let's look at James 4.4 again. I don't want you to miss this most amazing part. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This verse is both scathing and encouraging. The Bible says that you and I are guilty of adultery. And he uses two metaphors to describe the relationship we have with God. Paul Tripp says this about the church. The image of adultery means that we're married to God. When we say we are guilty of friendship with the world, he implies that our God is our rightful friend. For anyone who knows the Bible, this is wonderfully shocking. God is our rightful friend. An absolutely holy God who will not and cannot tolerate sin has made us his bride and a friend through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. I want you to think about those six things that we talked about before. I want you to see how Jesus approached all of them. Jesus gave up the comfort of heaven. He gave up the recognition by coming out of Nazareth. Realize that. It's Nazareth. It's like, right? It's like Bryan, Ohio, right? Like, oh, those people, right? That was supposed to be a joke, y'all. Come on. Who do we face on Friday? I should have used that. Patrick. Oh, Patrick Henry, right? He came out of Nazareth. Everyone made fun of Nazareth. He gave up recognition by being born there. He gave up power and control. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He gave up acceptance among those that could make the conflict disappear. You know what Jesus, all Jesus had to do was be like best friends with the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Roman leaders. We know he was good at being a friend of people and a friend of sinners, but he didn't. He didn't make conflict disappear. He entered into the antithesis of pleasure. What is that? Pain. Why? To have a relationship with you and with me. He entered into conflict that existed between your heart and God. He became a peacemaker. He became the bridge so that you can have eternal life. That you could be made new. And this enables you to do the same for others. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. Dying to self in the midst of conflict is commanded. We as a church can bring glory to God within these walls when we enter conflict and outside of them as we model the biblical way of handling conflict with the world. Amen.